Hi there, welcome back to Creative Health Podcast, where stories and information are shared about the health and well-being benefits of engaging in and experiencing creativity, culture and the arts. I'm your host, Laura Bailey. My guest today is Natasha Reed, founder of Matter Space Soul, a specialist design consultancy shaping places for health, well-being and social sustainability. She focuses on the social, psychological and emotional impacts of places and is an advocate for the power of design to create change that really matters. She has been recognised in international publications such as Wallpaper and Elle Decoration as a groundbreaker and a woman to watch. Natasha and I chatted about the importance of how buildings, spaces and places are designed to support health and well-being and about the role of artists in urban design. She also talked to me about her own creative well-being practice through painting. Here's what she had to say. Hi Natasha, welcome to Creative Health Podcast. Hi Laura, thanks so much for the invitation to be part of this. It's uh, great to see this with you. It's great to have you here. I wanted to invite you to share your knowledge and ideas because I've been working in the context of development and regeneration, urban design, architecture, placemaking for the past five years. And I've been involved in projects which are trying to design health into the places and spaces in which people live, work, visit, travel, etc. And I think it's such a fascinating and important thing to address, given the state of public health in this country. So I was really happy when you said yes, that you would come on my podcast. And so through your business, Space Matter Soul, have I got that the right way around? Uh, Matter Space Soul. Matter Space Soul, I knew I was going to get that wrong. <laughs> you work across architecture, interiors, urban design and art with the aim of enabling people to be healthier and to have good well-being through the physical spaces that they exist in. Why was it important for you to focus your work on improving people's quality of life and well-being through design? I guess I can maybe start a bit with my journey and what took me to this place and um, sort of setting up Matter Space Soul and, and the focus that I've had on health and well-being and social sustainability. And my sort of starting point was quite traditional in architecture. So I studied architecture at Cambridge and then went along the kind of expected path of working at really great practices on fantastic projects but I felt that I was always very much more interested in in the human side of spaces and the way that places affect us uh, our behaviors the way that we move or connect with other people how we feel and whilst in sort of normal practice you can start to look at those things there's always a bit of a barrier and this was sort of 10 years ago and I set up on my own and started working independently there's still a barrier in terms of what the industry the wider industry and clients were expecting and so I found that actually I, I needed to look at different disciplines to sort of explore more deeply how places impact us so I, I left where I was working and I started working independently and actually a bit unexpectedly doing an art project which was about it was called an embassy for refugees and it was a project that was combining art in terms of making an installation but also with architecture in terms of making a space that could represent people that are 
sort of marginalized from society and I worked with refugee children to come up with the concept for the space and try and explore their ideas about what an idea of home and sanctuary was and we kind of made these secret dens and I translated that into a space so I found that sort of moving away from my traditional profession <laughs> enabled me to start looking at these more uh, intangible side of, of cities and spaces and where we live and then from that point really that was 10 years ago and that project was part of Refugee Week back in 2013 and since then I've done all sorts of different kind of research projects and small sort of design pilot projects drawing from different disciplines like environmental psychology, uh, anthropology, social sciences, how people kind of behave and even looking at neuroscience now, so there's something called neurodesign, which is emerging as a field. Oh, wow. And how can we bring that research that exists about how places even impact our brain or levels of stress and really start to bring that into the way that places are designed? Because uh, there is this, this huge amount of research out there and this evidence, but it doesn't really make it into everyday mainstream design or planning um, practices. Wow, that's so interesting because that's very similar for what we call creative health now in terms of this sort of bigger movement, which is more around people engaging in, you know, creative and cultural activities. But it's the same issue. There's all this evidence, but then it doesn't somehow make it into a mainstream health offer. And that's what lots of people are working on. But I love this. I love this journey that you've been on. It's really fascinating. And I want to delve into what some of these things actually mean and how they can be addressed. And I know from my own limited experience that this is such a huge subject, isn't it? I mean, (laughs) there's so many different elements and aspects of designing places and spaces and how you design them and who you're designing them for and how they're going to function and so on. So We might not be able to get into the detail of everything, but I really would like to share with listeners why these kinds of design practices matter and how you think they need to be put into practice, I suppose, in order that we can all benefit from good design and benefit from where we live and how we move through those spaces in terms of our health and well-being so tell us broadly to start with why how the built and natural environment is designed is important for our health and well-being so there's a concept that's used mainly in, in public health called the social determinants of health uh, or the wider determinants of health as well and that's looking at all the, the factors that are non-medical that affect people's health and well-being. So it can be starts from lifestyle and more kind of individual things, but also takes into consideration all the the sort of settings in which people live, work, grow, and a big part of that is the built environment and the natural environment too. And it's shown that people who live in more deprived areas uh, in comparison to people living in wealthier or Um, more affluent areas, the difference in life expectancy can be around 10 years in terms of, you know, that kind of quite stark difference to really bring it home. And that is quite complex, you know, all the different factors that relate, but it can be about your quality of housing, 
how that supports your kind of baseline needs of, of support and, and shelter and not being overcrowded. But then there's different layers of sort of needs about how we connect to people and relationships are shown to be very important. So how neighbourhoods can support community and a sense of belonging or interaction with other people. So loneliness particularly is gaining more attention as a, a topic of policy importance. There are studies to show that being lonely can be as bad for you as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So in terms of the kind of health impacts associated with that. And the built environment has the power to sort of enable connection between people that can enable it or disable it. And in the same way, it can support our mental health and kind of nurture us and give us, for example, if you have access to green space, that's shown to have lots of different kind of benefits in terms of mental health, reducing stress, even kind of supporting people to feel more sociable and interact with other people. So there's, there's lots of different factors in the way that I've been looking at it is trying to join up actually across those different dimensions. Some are more direct to do with health and then some are a bit less uh, or a bit more indirect, which is about how we come together and as communities, how we're including different people, responding to different user needs, whether that's the needs of older people, younger people, uh, women kind of and girls and safety. So trying to take a really holistic look at what well-being and health can mean, uh, not just your physical health as well. Mm. I was going to ask about these things actually later on, but you picked up on them now. So let's just kind of pull these out a bit more. So because I know you're interested in the work of Michael Marmot and public health and like you said, the wider social determinants of health. And we've seen in the last few years and even this year, like the devastating effects that poor housing can have on, you know, your ability to learn at school, your ability to get a job, your ability to engage socially. And then worst case scenario is that it causes deaths. Unfortunately, we've seen this year with Awab Ishak and obviously Grenfell where poor design has really devastating effects. What do you think can be done at policy level by government and by education institutions who are teaching things like architecture and urban design and planning? What can be done to try to shift the priority from money and profit being the main driver or the only driver or measures of success to putting health and well-being and quality of life at the top? I'm so glad you asked that question because <laughs> um, that's sort of what I'm, I'm focusing on at the moment and what my recent work for the last year and a half has been about. So, yeah, as you say, health inequalities has this huge impact and, you know, the conditions that you live in, that your surroundings will keep kind of compounding if they're not right uh, and people end up worse and worse off you don't just have one problem it'll add more and more so it's really critical to actually acknowledge that <laughs> and particularly in design and in planning you know that's starting to happen but there's so much more that can be done so what I've been working on uh, in the last year and a half is a new framework which is 
part a design tool, but also part of planning policy. And that I've been, uh, it's called the Place Quality Framework. And it's based on my previous research about how you design for that human experience of place, the things that kind of matter to people, <laughs> uh, not just how things look, and actually what are going to be the impacts on people's lives. And I've brought that research into a local authority in London. So I've been working partly within Brent Council to implement new guidance and requirements around requiring quality of life to be shown and demonstrated as part of the way that developments are being designed and then assessed for planning permission. So that's the really key thing is that it'll be one of the first kind of interventions that requires health and well-being to be demonstrated. So this framework has got different aspects to it. It's got three kind of dimensions, health and well-being, community and belonging, and then vibrant and inclusive places. And within that, there's a whole set of criteria that developments will be required to address and answer how they've delivered on all different criteria that affect quality of life. So that's just one step in, in a way, um, and it's in one local authority, but it's already been identified as a really good exemplar case study. So I did a talk for Homes England in summer alongside Michael Chang, who works at the Office of Health Improvement and Disparities. And he's also author of a book on public health and spatial planning. So we both did a talk about health in design. He was talking at the national level about new guidance. And then I was talking about what can be done at the local government level. And uh, it was really great. Uh, we had over a thousand people signed up. So it was sold out. We had about 600 people on the day. And the idea is, you know, I'm trying to share this now and going forwards, seeing if it can be adopted and applied to different local authorities and ideally um, influencing at national level too. Because for me, it just, it makes complete sense that you'd want to support people's health because also that has an economic benefit. <laughs> so if people are, you know, ill and can't work or you know, there's just so many impacts if there's less crime, less costs on spending and to do with policing. So all these things, it's just shifting what's valued and prioritised, which I think there needs to be a bit of a cultural shift towards it. But I can see things going in that direction. So I think it's all quite positive, but be good to get there faster. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. But, um, you know, well done on the work that you're doing, both in terms of advocacy and then trying to put that into practice. We can definitely put a link to that on the show notes. I want to understand a bit more about both sort of architecture and urban design and how each of those different practices can directly influence people's health and well-being. So in terms of architecture, and, you know, there's the aesthetics of a building on the outside, but then how that, and obviously the inside as well. I'm not an architect, by the way, so, this, you know, I will speak in layman's <laughs> terms. But, you know, internally, I'm assuming now, you know, it's just standard that we think about disability access, for example. We always think about 
travel to you know if it's a public building for example and parking and all of those sorts of things but how much consideration do you think goes into how a building feels for people to be in how much are neurological differences considered in buildings I know that colleagues of mine are really interested in designing for dementia for example those sorts of things can you just talk to us a little bit about architecture practice in relation to those things yeah so in terms of how you feel in a a building and what might affect your say levels of comfort of stress potentially and general kind of mental well-being it can start with the real basics such as having natural light so having lots of light a sense of spaciousness having spaces where you can rest so if you're thinking about where you live there's not too much noise you can actually have that calm environment so these are the real kind of baseline factors your kind of comfort levels having a space that feels like your own as well so places where you feel like you have control uh, over what's going on in that space. So control has been shown to affect quality of life and well-being. So there's a something called the Quality of Life Foundation, um, which is a charity that does a lot of research around these topics. So they have different uh, areas that they've been looking at. So control is one of them. Yeah, having a sense that you can either control your environment or even input into the way that Say, if you're in a development, what happens in the spaces around? Can you come together with other people to do activities? And then that brings us more into the social side of of connection, and that supports mental health as well. But how, say, if you're in a a block of flats rather than on a street with homes, how often are you going to bump into your neighbours? Do you know who who you'd live next to? Do you have any kind of interaction? So the work that I've been looking at is particularly about how you can design homes, particularly in kind of high-density environments, which is where a lot of new development is happening and how it needs to happen to deliver on housing. But how can we actually design that in a way that you can meet people, you have a sense of community, you have people that you can rely on as well. So kind of thinking about the concept of something called social capital, so how your network people around you how how much you can rely on them and that kind of resilience that you see in communities that we we saw a bit come out during covid so there's yeah a lot of different ways (laughs) yeah and how might that play out then in the design of a public building for example like a community center or even if you were designing a new office building or you know, workspaces, how could those be designed better so that those places are influencing or encouraging good behaviours, better choices, and just create a sort of sense of well-being? Yeah, in a way, it's very similar principles that can transfer to all different types of spaces. So if we think about offices, again, starting with your kind of physiological needs let's say so comfort and having an environment that you're able to focus at work but also collaborate with other people so the space the way that the space is set up can allow for that or not uh did a, an office space 
a few years ago where I actually worked with an environmental psychologist and she gave me some um, research about having a need to have not too much visual stimulation when you're working. So when you, you're not overloaded like in your senses, having the ability to sort of look up from your screen and see something like um, either a view out from a window or even artwork with nature in it has shown to reduce stress, even just looking at nature. <laughs> so there's there's lots of ways in which the same sort of ideas apply to office space. And, and again, in terms of creating that sense of collaboration and community and getting to know your colleagues, that's really important as well um, and feeling a, a sense of purpose and belonging. So the way the spaces can be set up can either help you to to bump into people if you're going to get a a coffee in the kitchen um if there are spaces for people to actually come and work together it's a lot to do with how you move through space and what you can see who you can see so it's it's all kind of quite similar but there's different sort of priorities I suppose in an office and then if you're designing homes or if you're doing a public space there'll be slightly different things that you want to bring out to make that work really well for people Mm. Well, let's pick up on that public space because my understanding of urban design is, as opposed to architecture, is that urban design is kind of like the spaces in between buildings and as like the public realm, and that could be the roads, the pavements, the parks, and so on. Is that correct? Yeah, so it'll be everything that's not a building. Yeah. It takes that all in, basically. So. Yes, and so... Tell us how urban design influences our health and well-being. And I guess there are some fairly obvious things like, you know, building, designing cycle lanes, for example, to try to encourage people to take up more active travel, less use of the car, that kind of thing. But tell us some other things that are considered in urban design in relation to health. I think one of the biggest things is green space and access to it and how if there is green space how is it shaped so that people feel welcome to use it as well so if we think about say older people are there places for people to sit just simple things like that so that it's actually usable for different types of people thinking about women and girls and safety particularly say in darker times of the year you want those green spaces to be used or for people to walk through so it has to feel safe for women to do that so there's lots of ways that you can design it so that there's no kind of places where you feel very enclosed or you can't see other people no kind of alleyways and even just providing facilities so a lot of green spaces might have things that are more towards your typical kind of sports activities more used by Uh, younger men or teenage boys but actually having things that appeal to to girls so there's there's a really great charity called make space for girls who do a lot of work on this and finding out you know what what do they want what will make them feel welcome and spend time there and just by doing that that actually can encourage physical activities as well and make people more active so there's I think yeah green space has just got so much to give to people (laughs) and also really good for for the environment and sustainability so it's just that connection to nature I think is something that 
we've lost and needs to be brought back especially if we're talking about shifting values and and things it's it's something that you know we're part of nature so so let's embrace it a bit more Mm. and it's also you know for somebody who has teenage children you know you are fighting against the device all the time you know so there there needs to be ways that we can encourage young people to spend more time outdoors you know I've got a son who's super sporty and you know loves being outdoors playing football but not everybody is sporty so why else would teenagers go and hang out in a park you know that they need to feel accessible and welcoming don't they and safe for young people and old people for everybody so yeah how we design those spaces so that they do all of those things for everybody I'm sure is really challenging but really important yeah and I think that the point of it being for everyone as well is like having those different types of people all coming together spaces where you can have a range of generations as well you know older people and younger people how how do we make that happen so there's yeah lots of work to be done um, but but I think yeah urban design and public space is the place where everyone can come together you know you don't need to pay to go anywhere and it's it's one of the opportunities where you can really help support people's health and also that sense of kind of community and activity and you've got places to go to outside of your home your office yeah within walkable distance ideally or cycling distance and also how public spaces are designed like you say for activity because I've spent quite a lot of time over the last five years thinking about and working with designers of parks and open spaces trying to encourage them to design them so that they enable community gathering whether that's for a kind of summer fates or markets or bigger outdoor events because we know that those things are really great for community and community cohesion bringing people together they also go further than that in terms of supporting local business creating sense of identity for a place and there's lots of reasons so rather than just putting in a field sort of with nothing in it, which might be great for football, but not great for anything else, how do we get developers to consider those sorts of things as well? Yeah, and there's also the side of the environment that you're in in, in general and that sort of the feeling of it. I've, I've looked at places that have gone through a lot of estate regeneration and before that environment overall people would say you know it makes them feel depressed when they see it could be streets or public space to see places that aren't well looked after where people are there's obviously lots of sort of antisocial behaviors lots of problems and that really just overall impacts your well-being to be in that environment and to feel like there's no hope for the future sometimes for young people so it's sort of the whole space around you can affect your whole outlook really on what's possible do you think that the more is there a correlation between the more well designed a place is the more people care about it yeah I think it gives that sense of sort of dignity in a way where you've got you know you've got pride of where where you live this is my place you know the way that it's been made is cared for 
Um, you're more likely to care for it. And I suppose there's that the idea of the broken window effect, which is where if something's already neglected, people are more likely to actually treat it badly <laughs> in that place. So I think there's something about having that pride and feeling like there's been some care and attention and empathy, hopefully you pay to, to who's living there and what they need. I just want to go back to something you said earlier because you talked about office design that you'd been involved with and you'd collaborated with an environmental psychologist and I want to talk about this idea of you know multidisciplinary teams and also then the concept of co-design and how that can result in better spaces and places which then in turn support people's quality of life, health and well-being, etc. It strikes me that that makes total sense, that no one discipline or no one profession is going to have all of the answers. And I know that major developments do work with multidisciplinary teams. Everybody looking at, you know, they're working with different types of engineers and transport specialists and designers, you know, I mean, literally there's a long list. But the types of professions that you're talking about, to me, are maybe not so common. It's not commonplace to bring in a psychologist or a specialist in health who can talk about loneliness and that kind of thing. Talk to me about that. I think... You're absolutely right. And I absolutely agree with the fact that, you know, to deal with all the complexity of what makes us human, then we should be looking at that and understanding that it's, you know, it's not just about architecture with engineers or transport, but actually to get into that human, mental, social side, we need to bring in that knowledge and expertise and find ways to translate that into places. So really passionate about bringing together those other disciplines the ones that are not so common and bringing that into design and that's starting to happen in some cases but it really is like that absolute exception <laughs> and really not at all mainstream so that's something I'm, I'm hoping to work on going forward and, and really bringing together I've sort of got a really nice network of collaborators and partners who are all specialists in these different areas and finding ways to join that up and actually shape how places are created. So, yeah, I'd say that's 100% what we should be doing. <laughs> yeah, and as somebody who's commissioned a lot of work, not buildings, I have to say, but cultural programmes, for example, when you get a proposal on the table that is a multidisciplinary team, it is more often much more interesting and gives you a greater sense of confidence that they'll deliver the work really well because the fact that they've got all this different expertise in the team you know so I really hope that that starts to become more common that when work is put out for tender that they specifically ask for multidisciplinary teams you know and include naming sort of these more alternative types of professions that they would like to see contributing that would be 
ideal I think yeah and I wanted to pick up on um you mentioned co-creation as well oh co-design yeah and something I'm also quite passionate about is how to bring in creative practice and the arts into the way that you can engage and empower communities um so and this creative health podcast as well so um it is because uh, I, I practice as an artist as well. So I'm, I'm now starting to develop different ways to try and bring that more into the design side. But how through the arts, you can do workshops with people and really start to understand some of the sort of more nuanced aspects of their experience of that place, you know, what it means to them, their perceptions of things, their hopes for things, and really start to kind of address things to do with their environment but in a really creative and open way to create new possibilities and not just consult people about you know do you want more trees or do you want a playground but actually start to create shared visions together so that's something I'm looking to develop more going forward and I really think that art has got that potential to to help people connect but also express things about what they need yeah I totally agree I've worked with lots of artists and creative practitioners over many years and I have often brought them in to run and facilitate workshops that actually aren't necessarily their specialism you know they I'd have not to run a painting class or a drama group but actually to get people to think more creatively and to generate ideas and I really think that that can help in this context of development and regeneration and in terms of co-design I've been involved in quite a lot of co-design over the last five years and that is absolutely about having a range of voices influence a project whether it's the design of a park or a building community centre whatever it is because it's really important that we are building things that people need and want and aspire to better than just the sort of standard offer that we get time and time again, you know, up and down the country. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that the definition of placemaking, I know that everyone has a different definition, but it definitely is about involving people in the design of public spaces where they are going to be and they're going to spend time. So why would you not want to know what kinds of things are important to people in terms of where they want to hang out and where they want to spend, you know, a large part of their free time? Because otherwise you're going to run the risk of designing something that doesn't work or people don't like and we just talked about that earlier, didn't we? It's like, if you don't like a space or a place or a building, you're just not going to go there, are you? Yeah. And it's also about finding out sort of what's there that's already important to people or that's valuable or special, whether that's a place where people meet. And it, things that, you know, you're not going to know unless you actually talk to the people that live there. <laughs> and I think since... COVID and the pandemic, people have become more interested in, in the social impact of places. But to do that meaningfully, you just have to really be able to engage <laughs> with, with what's going on with people, with the place, what makes it what it is. 
not do it as a tick box exercise, but actually put people front and centre, and that actually will create value for for development as well. If, you know, thinking about the more commercial side, if people like and enjoy and want to spend time in the places that created that's going to be better for everyone but that doesn't always happen though does it because development and regeneration has a huge commercial element to it and so that place making side of things or creating great places that contribute to quality of life isn't always the top of the list but we want to get to a place where it's understood that actually the place you create, if you pre- if you create a place that does those things, it actually also has greater commercial value as well. Yeah, and there's if you create a place that's very lively and well used, it'll attract more people <laughs> to come. You know, there's more footfall from a commercial point of view. People spend more time there, and people come back. So there are really, I guess, if you're thinking more long term about places, then there is huge value in, in making places that people enjoy being in and I think it's when people think more short term that's where the the problem has been so yeah I think there is a change and a movement towards that but there's yeah definitely a lot more and further we could go Mm. do you have a favorite space or place that you love being in because it's been designed really well and it makes you feel really good being in it um I have to say that actually my favourite places are all natural ones. <laughs> um, so I'm yeah, big, big lover of nature. And those are the places where I feel best and why I'm quite passionate about creating more connection to it. Because I think it's just, that's where it's our kind of original habitat in a way. <laughs> in the places it can bring you joy, it can make you feel calm, it can uplift you. Um, and it can be as you know I, I go to my local park that's about three minute walks away uh, almost every day um, just to uh, sort of give myself a nature boost um, so for me it's it's definitely the natural environment and what my kind of aspiration would be is trying to bring as much of what you find there into the way that places are made and built as a way to just support what we are as natural creatures and beings so yeah and there are buildings that do that um and that's the ones that focused on that uh, use biophilic design I don't know if you've heard of that term no tell me what that means so that's taking the aspects that you find in nature and putting that into the design of space so it could be very basically putting in plants into a space and green aspects but to go into more depth the things that you experience in nature so the the patterns and the shapes that you find whether uh, there's kind of curves and soft shapes to even the kind of experiences that you have in terms of whether you feel quite kind of hidden and safe <laughs> um, um, or whether you can see quite far in a space and that's something called prospect and refuge theory but that's based on how we evolved to survive is that you want to be able to see what's around you but also protected so that no one can come and eat you (laughs) so there's things like that just in terms of our real kind of biological evolution that's hardwired in that's really interesting to bring into the design of buildings because that's 
our new kind of environment. I love that. That's really interesting. It's really sort of copying from nature, isn't it? Yeah. And there's, yeah, a lot of times it can be done, yeah, with the the shapes and the materials and texture. So not having to put a forest in a a building, but just, uh, it would be good if you could, but um, there's lots of different ways. But trying to replicate, I suppose, as far as possible, the same kind of environment or the way that that kind of environment makes you feel. Yeah, and it can even be about the light. So having light that kind of matches the natural rhythms or light that you get rather than just having really artificial light kind of all the time. So there's, yeah, lots of things to to draw from nature. I want to ask you a couple more things. The first one is sort of bringing the kind of creative health agenda to the fore, I suppose, in relation to buildings and spaces, because my work over the last few years has been looking at ways in which creative, cultural and arts facilities can be co-located with other things other types of spaces and buildings where other types of things happen that are perhaps considered more everyday because we know that lots of people don't feel connected to arts and culture because they don't think it's for them they think it's maybe quite elitist or just for affluent people you know so they don't they wouldn't step into a theater for example an art gallery So the idea is to create spaces which enable art, culture and creativity to happen in in its broadest sense in other everyday spaces. So that might be in a health centre or in a park, as we've been talking about, in community centres, in faith buildings and schools, for example, so that it becomes more accessible and more visible Um, and more available to everybody so that they can both benefit from the huge social and health benefits that that we know about and we've talked about and the economic value of that culture and arts can offer and we know that there's lots of work going on to repurpose old buildings empty shops that kind of thing And I just wondered what your thoughts are on this approach to regeneration and arts and culture's potential to support health and well-being through that approach. Yeah, I think there's so much potential there and it's it's a shame it hasn't already been realised. But I think it's being able to bring in those aspects, particularly into places that are, you're talking about kind of high streets um, where there might be empty spaces or uh, into kind of everyday spaces around so that you it just becomes part of your normal routine and you just might discover an art class or a dance class or some sort of activity. I think it would have huge benefits to be able to have that as just part of people's everyday lives so it's not seen as something separate or that you go and make a trip to a gallery um, specifically, but it's something that's just part of just kind of civic life yeah I think we should be finding more opportunities to do that and I I suppose culture and and creativity hasn't necessarily always been prioritized but the the health aspect of it 
I think it's so clear um, that it should be. So, yeah. Mm. And even in in office buildings and workspaces, for example, I mean, how great would it be if there was like a yoga studio that, you know, is built into those spaces? There probably is in like the Google buildings of the of this world, <laughs> for example, where you can take your dogs to work and stuff. But in general, I don't, yeah, that's not really considered in a work environment either, is it? Yeah, actually workplace well-being is hugely important. We spend so many hours of our day at work or, I mean, we used to pre-COVID. I know we all work at home a lot more now, but lots of people, millions of people still go to a place of work. And so it'd be really amazing if creativity and well-being could be kind of baked into that as well. Yeah, and it's it can be, if you think about, from a office point of view, actually having activities for people to do together as a team has huge benefits in terms of sort of bringing people together, strengthening how mm, people work together. Productivity. Yeah, and I think it would be brilliant. I think just having that, the, the kind of power that art has to connect people as well and just meet other people. So I'm part of, uh, I live in South East London in Sydney and there's just done the, been part of the Sydenham Arts Trail where people kind of open up their homes and studios oh nice it's incredible just the conversations that you have with people that you'd never speak to otherwise and I sort of opened up my studio in the garden for two weekends and it just makes that kind of connection between people that you just never have yeah so I think it's the power of it has got so many different benefits well, that leads us very nicely on to um, my last question or questions for you, which is about your own personal creative practice and the benefits that that has on your well-being. I know that you've said you're, you're a practicing artist and you like to paint, particularly nature and landscapes. What does this do for you and for your well-being? So I came back to painting about a year and a half ago after having not really picked up a paintbrush for, for 20 years since school. And it was part of, I suppose, a bit of my healing journey in terms of mental well-being. There's a time of my life where I needed to do, do things to support that. And so I started painting again. And it's hugely kind of nourishing practice, both in terms of like the actual making of the art feeling that kind of sense of, I don't know, connection to the wider world in a way. But also, like I was talking about with the the arts trail, all the different things that you do really supports connection with other people. And I think it's something I want to bring more into my the design side of my work. So that's kind of the next phase going forward is how to to tap into what art can do in its many different ways and try and support uh, the work that I'm doing around sort of designing places for well-being. I think an artist just has the ability to make, help people think differently about things, don't they? What advice would you offer someone who might be struggling with their own mental health or with anxiety or loneliness, for example, in terms of how they might try to help themselves, either through their environment and where they live, in terms of seeking out spaces or places or things to do looking at what community assets they've got around them what would you what would you say to somebody yeah I think obviously not not being a a qualified 
mental health professional <laughs> um, just from my my personal lived experience and my design background yeah I'd say some of the the very foundational things of, of getting outside being outside in nature just to reduce anxiety and, and feel calm and finding what is around you in your kind of five minutes from where you live 10 minutes from where you live as your kind of resource what places can you go to that make you feel good uh, even if it's just a nice cafe <laughs> what places can you go to where you might be able to meet other people so really it's quite simple things but they, they all add up to kind of support people through difficult times and obviously that that's separate to to seeking out help and support but there's things that you can do just kind of help yourself as well oh thank you Um, yeah I think see what's around (laughs) yeah I think that's really good advice and yes of course people should seek professional help and this is not a medical or clinical advice type of podcast this is much more about people like you offering up suggestions from your own lived experience as to what helped you and then obviously talking about your you know, your professional expertise as well. So thank you, Natasha. Thank you for coming on Creative Health Podcast. I've learned lots and it's been really fascinating to talk to you and good luck with your work and your own creative practice. And I'll catch up with you soon. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please rate, review and subscribe. Follow the show on Instagram at creativehealthpod and via the website creative-health.co.uk. This episode was edited by Penny Bell. Creative Health Podcast has been supported through Kent County Council's Arts Investment Fund. Music